either in front or next door, um, and get the pen that hopefully is also there. We want to take a moment and just fill these out. And so if you are a member with us that have been here um, for a while, have done these before, then simply just put your name and then any information that may have changed in regards to uh, your address or email address or phone number or anything like that. Um, if you are a, a visitor, we'd love to know how you found out about us, so there's a place to put that at the bottom. Then on the back, we have some places to indicate where uh, just some information or some next steps that you would like to take. If uh, you have decided to become a follower of Jesus, we would love to know about that and to walk with you through that. Um, if you want information about any of uh, the things in, in membership, if you were to check that, that would get you um, information about the growth track class that I mentioned earlier. And so you would get something and it would show you how to register for that and so forth. And those are held right after church, as I said, um, every Sunday. So just check that. And then finally, we have a place for prayer requests. Um, if you want to uh, provide a request that the entire church will pray for, you put that there. If you, it's something that you would rather the entire church not know about, but just want, still want prayer for it, then just put the keep private, check that little box up there, and we will keep that um, private. So just take a few moments. We're going to fill those out and then collect those. If you have uh, tithe and offering that you haven't already put in the boxes at the back, you can put those in the basket uh, during this time as well. So. All right, well, before we start the message today, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. So, uh, Lord, I just pray your blessings upon uh, these words. I pray that they would uh, impact the hearers. Give all of us ears to hear, eyes to see, and, and hearts that will truly listen. So, we, we thank you, give you praise, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, today we're going to finish the second half of the message that we started last week. And uh, the message is called, How to Bring Out the Best in Kids or Anybody Else, right? And, um, and the reason we say that is because these principles apply whether you're dealing with children or your employees, your coworkers, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, really anybody, okay? So these are five things that the Bible talks about that will bring out the best in people. But in this case, we're sort of specifically applying it to children. But it works in all cases. And I think one of the reasons that this series is so important is that um, the most recent statistics show 
that 40% of all American children are in homes without a father. You know, in some ethnic groups, that's as high as 75% without a dad in the home. But across the board, it's 40%. And the thing is that, that kids need both men and women in their life to understand the full image of God. The Bible says God created us in his image, male and female. Women have a part of the image of God, and men have a part of the image of God. And that's why we need both, because nobody has all of that. And so, um, you know, the thing is that gender really was God's idea. It wasn't somebody else's idea. Uh, he created it to express his full image. And so whether you get married or not, you still need, if you're a man, you still need feminine perspectives in your life. And if you're a woman, you still need masculine perspectives in your life. Um, and the thing is that, you know, this absence, we talked about this last week, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it uh, this week, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be th that, let's just say it's a, a, a single mom, it doesn't have to be the father necessarily if it's a strong male that will be, as a part of that family, can fill that same role. Um, see, the, uh, but the unfortunate thing is this is really the first generation in history that's tried to maintain a civilization without moms and dads together. Now, I do realize that some of you here are single parents, and maybe that wasn't your choice. Um, but the fact is that you're heroes to us because you're trying to keep your family together. And uh, Harmony Vineyard, this church, and all of its members are committed to helping you as a single parent, grow and be as effective as you possibly can. And there's some more good news, is that there was another study that showed that the number one factor that determines whether a child is going to make it in life, whether they're actually going to succeed or whether they're going to tank, is the presence of at least one caring adult in their life. It's not, has virtually nothing to do with ethnic background. It has nothing to do with where you live. It has nothing to do with your economic uh, situation. It's the presence of a caring adult in that, child, in that child's life that says whether or not they will make it. See, Proverbs 24.3 says this, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And so the caring adult or adults that are in that child's life have to have wisdom and understanding. Well, where do you get that? Here. This is the owner's manual for life, okay? It's the owner's manual for marriage. It's the owner's manual for your business. Everything that you need to live a successful life in this. But see, the thing is, you got to read the owner's manual <laughs> if you're going to know how to do it, right? If you don't read it, then you're probably going to misuse things and not understand exactly how to do things. And so wisdom and understanding comes from reading this and letting it be a part of your life. So last week, if you were here, we covered the first two of the five principles. And I'm not going to go over all of that again. It's up on the website, or you can get it through our, uh, our Harmony Vineyard app. Uh, it's a podcast, so you can go and listen to it there. But just to kind of review, uh, there were two principles that we talked about. The first two to bring out a best in, in a child or somebody else. The first one was to accept their uniqueness completely. And then the second was to affirm their value continually. And we also then talked about all of the enemies in culture that really keep these two things from uh, happening and why kids need all of you in their lives. You know, whether you're a, a mom, a dad, an aunt, an uncle, a friend uh, of the family, kids, a coach, a teacher, kids need all of those kinds of influences in their lives. Um, we talked about this idea of comparing and conforming and how how uh, detrimental that can be. You know, when we're sp we spend time trying to uh, 
compare ourselves to others. We Remember we talked about how God made each of us uniquely. And so there isn't anybody truly that you can compare yourself to or anybody else. And then this, this pressure to conform constantly to uh, what our culture says. And so I also gave you ways to show affirmation. I gave you three ways that showed how you are incredibly valuable to God. God says that I made you, I sent my son to die for you, and that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so that's what establishes your value. And now, today, we're going to look at the last three. And these are, I think, three biggest mistakes that we tend to make as parents, and maybe in particular Christian parents. I don't have any statistics on that. But I think the things we tend to do is we overprotect, we overcorrect, and we overindulge. All right? Uh, and the next three principles from the Word of God actually deal with all of these. So let's, let's start uh, right away and just look at them. So principle number three is trust them with increasing responsibility. I mean, really, if you think about it, nothing brings out the best in you or anybody else faster than having somebody trust you. Jesus said that the way we help people grow is by putting trust in them so that they can become responsible or able to respond. Responsibility means that you're able to respond. And the thing is, if you never have an opportunity to respond, then you can't really become responsible. Now, if you want to become a better leader, there's plenty of ways to do that. There are courses on leadership, there's classes on leadership, there's seminars on leadership, there are books on leadership, there's lots of podcasts on leadership. But the only way you can really become a leader is to lead. You have to actually do it. It's kind of like parenting. <laughs> you can read a lot of books on parenting, but until you actually are a parent, you don't truly understand what those books are talking about. Same thing with leading. You have to learn on the job, and it's a given that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But that's how you learn to lead. And so, in order to accomplish that with somebody else, you have to give them responsibility. Now, in Luke chapter uh, 16, Jesus gives us three ways to help people become responsible. And I think one of the big goals of any parent's life is to help your kids become responsible citizens. Right? The goal of, of parenting ought to be to, to move them. So originally they're dependent on you, so we want to move them from dependence on you to independence. And then hopefully the last step is dependence on God. Right? So that's sort of the path that they, they take. And so we're going to look uh, at Luke 16, 10, 11, and 12 to try and figure out how to do that. So uh, to put all this into practice, the number one thing you can do is to trust them with small things. Trust them with small things. In verse 10, Jesus says this, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The Greek word that is translated faithful can also be translated as trustworthy. And so from the very beginning, you start with your kids very early, and you start giving them responsibilities, little things, like helping you clean up around the house, picking up their toys, stuff like that. And you gradually increase that over time as they're able. And so God says that if you're faithful in little, you'll end up being faithful in much. You'll establish that pattern. Number two is trust them with possessions and money. Um, in verse 11, Jesus says this, If then you have, not, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now we're kinda not going to go into this verse in any great detail, but it's basically saying that God watches how you manage your money to see if he can trust you with the more important stuff. Money's not the most important stuff, right? right. We, we, we all sort of understand that. But, and God says that, that if I can't trust you with material blessings, how am I going to trust you with more spiritual blessings like influence or prosperity or fame or more power in your life? I can't trust you with spiritual blessings if I don't, can't see that you actually manage your material blessings well. And so money tends to be kind of an acid test of sorts. Um, 
you have to really understand and realize that it all comes from God. And you're just the money manager, right? You're the property manager. It's ultimately not yours. And so are you doing the best that you can to try to make the most of what it is that you've been given? That's a principle in life, but it's also a really good principle to follow in parenting. And I know there's debate on this, but just as a thought, one of the ways that you can do this is really to start by giving your kids an allowance long before they need an allowance. Okay? And you do it because you want to teach them how to be responsible. So you start out by giving them an amount that you can split into thirds. And, and I don't know, let's just say 15 cents, three nickels. That's not much, but <laughs> you figure out the amount <laughs> for your children. Um, but you give them an amount that you can split into thirds. And so you say, okay, one-third is for giving to the church, one-third is for saving, and one-third you can spend any way you want. And so from a very early age, you're sort of teaching them not just to spend every nickel that they get whenever they get it. And so part of it they're going to give back to God, part of it they're going to put away for themselves for later, and part of it they can do whatever they want to with. And then there's a third thing, and that is trusting them with things that don't belong to them. You have to give kids th things that, you know, is, and see how they operate with something before you actually go out and give them their own. So, you know, maybe they want a guitar. Well, how do you handle somebody else's guitar before you go get your own? You want a car. Well, how do you, do you know how to, how to be trustworthy with a car? Do you know how to maintain a car and so forth? And it's true in ministry. You don't just go out and get your own ministry. You serve in somebody else's ministry before you get your own, typically. And so verse 12 says this, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Great people, great parents, great leaders, great bosses, Realize that people respond to responsibility, and if you want them to be responsible, then you have to give them the opportunity to do it wrong. God does this all the time. He doesn't force us to do the right thing. God gives you a free will that allows you to make choices each and every day. And most of the time, maybe a lot of the time, we make wrong choices. And God just lets that happen. Why does he do that? Well, he wants you to learn to be responsible. He could take responsibility for everything in your life and you would have no choice as to what to do. But he doesn't do that. He lets us make choices, even the wrong ones, because that's how you become responsible. Now, you know, in most cases, nobody gets fired for making a single mistake. I guess it could be a really big one, but, you know, in generally speaking, we make a mistake, we don't get fired. What you get fired for is you make the same mistake over and over and over again, right? Because that means that you're not learning anything. Uh, you know, personally, when I was playing basketball, I rarely got yelled at for making a mistake of commission, which is when I was trying to make something happen within my skill set and ability. What I got yelled at was mistakes of omission, when I, was, when I failed to do something that I had been told to do, right? Galatians 6.5 says this, for each will have to bear his own load. Now there's obviously a balance here you know, when your kids are first born, you're totally responsible for everything in their life because they can't do anything. But gradually, you start moving them further and further into a place of responsibility. Um, next week, the message that I'm going to do is going to talk about how do we develop a remarkable life. And you, know, you all know that there are some people in your life that really are just kind of remarkable. They're outstanding in business, they're outstanding in their family, they have an outstanding life, etc. Well, because somewhere along the line they learn the qualities of living a remarkable life, and we're going to look at those next week. And one of those that we're going to touch on 
is, is resourcefulness. And people don't learn to be resourceful unless you let them solve their own problems. Because if you solve every problem for your child, then they're never going to learn to be resourceful and solve their own. I think one of the most important skills in life is learning responsibility, but the only way you can do that is to have the opportunity to fail. And a lot of us have this deep-seated need to keep our kids from failing. We forget that failure is not fatal, failure is not final, and it's okay to fail. And you don't need to protect your kids from failure. And more than that, if they fail, they don't need you to protect them from the bad feelings that go with it. Right? Studies have shown that overprotective parents produce insecure kids. Why is that? Well, because kids who have this unbroken string of success and who are never allowed to fail, consequently are never allowed to know what it feels like to fail. And so the end result is they end up fearing failure more than most normal people. They've got to understand that when they fail, yes, it's going to feel bad. You're not going to like it. But the feeling doesn't last. It's going to pass and, go, and you're going to go on to something else. Life is hard. It's tough. You're not just going to breeze through everything, doing everything well. Sometimes you fail. And if, if they never get out of your house experiencing that, once they do, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> right? There's going to be some reality hitting them square in the jaw um, that probably could have been prevented. I think a lot of parents probably wind up saying, well, if I had to do it all over again, I, I would maybe do less for my kids and teach them to do more for themselves. And I think we have to understand that. There's a principle at work here. And that is, anytime you take responsibility for someone, you take it away from them. So this is an important thing. Now, some of you have adult children. The thing is, you're responsible to those kids, but you're not responsible for those kids. In fact, by the time your kids reach junior high school, you're not really responsible for any of their decisions anymore. Well, for all of them. Some of them, certainly. But see, the thing is, they're spending far more time with their peers at that point than they are with you. And by the time they hit high school, they're already making decisions that you're not responsible for because they're making choices that was not yours and probably wouldn't have been yours had you been asked. But see, this whole business of parenting is letting go of the responsibility and creating the trust in them so that they can eventually become responsible citizens on their own. See, because we haven't done this, we have kids who are 35 years old still playing video games and living at home because they haven't learned how to be responsible. Uh, just on Friday, literally, I saw a bankrate.com study that claimed half of American parents have cut back on their retirement savings to help pay their children's bills. Half. Parents are putting their kids' car insurance, cell phone bills, credit card debt, and health care costs ahead of their own need to grow their retirement fund. Part of bringing out the best in your kids is allowing them to fail, and if you don't do that, it's going to weaken their character. Now, you're all, you are going to have to figure it out in your family. Thankfully, I've done that, I think, <laughs> and it turned out well. But you're going to have to figure out how to do it on your own. Right? But the idea is that your kids can't be responsible unless you give them that ability to respond. Start letting them make the decisions and then learn to trust them. Are they going to make some bad ones? Yeah. You did. <laughs> let's, let's have a, all right, we're going to have a time of testimony here. Who would like to give a testimony of a bad decision that you made as a teenager? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, so you made some bad ones, but the point is you survived them, 
right? Okay, and they will too. Um, so let's move on to the fourth principle. To bring out the best in somebody, we must correct without condemning. Correct without condemning. Now see, we all need correction because we're all imperfect. The Bible says that we all sin. We have a nature to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. Um, the Bible says in Proverbs 3.12, For the Lord reproves him he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I don't think I had that on here, did I? No. And see, what we've got to notice there is that the correction is not out of punishment. Correction is out of love. The father corrects his child or the mother corrects her child because she delights in that child. She loves the child and she wants the child to succeed. Now I'm going to say something that might shock some of you. I like to say that and then just let that hang there for a second. <laughs> but here it is. If you are God's child, God never punishes you. If you are in God's family, God never punishes you. Now see, not everybody's in God's family. You have to ask to get in that family. It's really easy, but you still have to ask. But if you're in God's family, you're God's child, and God never punishes you when you do something wrong. Why? Because Jesus took all the punishment on the cross. Now, so that you don't go running out of here telling everybody what a weird theology I'm preaching, God does correct you. God does discipline you. But punish? Mm -mm. Punishment, think about it this way. Punishment looks at the past. Okay? Punishment is a penalty for the past, whereas discipline is a correction for the future. And that's a big difference. Right? God doesn't punish you when you sin if you are a follower of Christ. Why? Because Jesus died for all of your sins, including the ones that you haven't yet committed. The ones that you're going to do this week and next week and next year and the rest of your life, all of those are included on the cross. And if God took all that punishment on himself, and then he turned around and he punished you again for the same sins? That's, that's double punishment, and that's not fair. And God does not do that. And so everything that you will ever do wrong in life has already been paid for in the cross. Now here's the thing, because I know there are people here that think this. So when something bad happens to you and you think, well, God's just getting even with me, you are 100% wrong. If there was a way to be more than 100% wrong, you would be that. God does not, does not, does not get even with you. He's already paid for all of that, so the punishment is in the past. We've got to get this through our heads. And more importantly, we've got to get it into our hearts. Some of you know that. You could recite that. You could probably tell what verses refer to that. But you don't know it here. You've never gotten it down 18 or whatever, how many inches that is. Right? It's got to go from here to here. Because if it doesn't, you're never going to get this. You're going to go through life striving and, and constantly trying to please a God who's already delighted with you and you just won't accept it. Accept it. He's delighted with you. And so, in the same way as parents, we don't want to punish for the past. We want to correct for the future, and that's called discipline. Okay? Now, it's interesting because there are some experts today who really reject this idea of any kind of discipline in the home. 
But the Bible says that if you don't discipline your kids, it means two things. First of all, it means that you don't really love them. Look at what it says in Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You want them to become responsible. You want them to be mature. You want to put them on the right path. You want them to be a success in life. And so you are not to spare the rod. And, and you know, whatever that looks like in your house and in your manner of discipline, it's not meaning that we beat our kids with rods. It just simply is saying that discipline is part of parenting. And to not do it, and to not do it according to this, a fair amount, means that you don't really love your children. Second thing is, and this is almost worse, it means that you're okay with destroying their lives. Proverbs 19.18 says this, Discipline your children while there is hope. Do not set your heart on their destruction. Wow. You're actually aiding them in destroying their lives if you don't teach them how to live a disciplined life. Because most of the work that gets done in the world today is done by people who don't want to do it. Did you ever think about that? I don't always feel like getting out of bed when the alarm goes off, and I'm sure you don't either. But the thing is, you do it and I do it because of this thing called discipline that we were taught and lived as we grew up. So how do you do this? How do you go about this process of correcting your children without condemning them? I'd say there's two ways, and so let's, let's look at these. So put the, putting this into practice, we would say, number one, never correct in anger. Never, never, never correct in anger. If you are angry, then you need to wait until you're not, and then do the correction. Never correct in anger, because if you are angry, then you're going to overreact, and overreaction leads to overcorrection. And overcorrection and overreaction are as harmful as overprotection in a child's life. I, and this is something I'm, a, I'm somewhat personally familiar with. Most of you know that my mother died when I was very young, and so my dad was a single parent, not by choice, raising two small sons, five and two, when, when she died. And without that other, probably softer half to consult with, when it came to punishment. You know, I, often in, I could often hear, as I was an adult thinking about this, I would hear my mother say something like, well now Clarence, I think killing him is maybe a little bit too, too much, so why don't we, maybe we back off that a little bit? Because that was his first impulse. I mean, I can't tell you how many months my brother and I got grounded for doing stuff. I mean, he, <laughs> he just, bang, he went for it. Um, and he may have, you know, it probably would have helped if there had been somebody there to kind of help balance things out a little bit, right? You know, this, like I said, death is maybe not the best way to let's solve this problem. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, and this, this goes as well to mothers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, when you're angry, all you're going to do is make them angry. Anger almost always produces anger, and it makes kids angry and resentful. Instead, bring them up with loving discipline that God approves, with suggestions and godly advice. Now look, I'm not saying that you're not occasionally going to have to release some frustration. I, I get that. But that's different from correcting them in anger, because it's anger that actually harms the relationship. See, if you get negative with your kids, then they're going to end up being negative back with you. You're going to reap what you sow. And so disciplining, disciplining in anger is really just getting even. It might make you feel better for a moment, but it's actually going to harm the relationship you have with your child. See, because you can scare people into doing almost anything. 
but you're harming the relationship because they're going to remember the fear. And so never, never correct in anger. And then number two, choose your words carefully. And I would say of all the times in your life when you need to be the most precise and to think through exactly what you want to say before you just spout off, it's when you're disciplining a child. Choose your words carefully. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What's corrupting talk? Well, it's words that put down. It's words that shame. It's words that create offense. It's words that hurt. It's words that create resentment. Because harmful words become harmful memories. See, there was this little poem that I'm sure you all heard when you were growing up. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will what? That is a total lie. <laughs> that poem is a total lie. Words that don't hurt me? Are you kidding me? You know, when you were a kid, maybe you fell out of a tree or fell off a bike and you broke a bone somewhere. Uh, and it hurt, but it healed a few months later and then you had a great story to tell. But words that were said to you in anger when you were a child, you still remember 20 and maybe even 40 years later. The Bible says that we are to speak the truth in love, and so you have to choose your words carefully. And, and, and here's the thing. You can't plan when a child is going to open up to you. Right? And the thing is, when they do, it's rarely going to be when you're having a face-to-face -face conversation. More often than not, it's going to be side-to-side. -side. Kids will often open up more when they're sitting in the back seat and you're in the front seat, or they're sitting next to you rather than when they're sitting in front of you. And when they do open up, they're not going to stay open for very long. And if all of a sudden you freak out over what they just told you, bam, that door is shutting and it's staying closed. So calm on the outside, freak out on the inside, okay? Freak out on the inside all you want, just don't let it out. Karen's laughing, she knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> she deals with those little ones across the hall all the time. Okay, so true confession time now. How many of you have ever had a child say something to you, and in your mind you're thinking, how dare you, you little squirt? <laughs> how dare you say something like that to me? Right? But see, the moment that it becomes about hurting my pride, it's no longer discipline. It's retaliation. God does not bless retaliation. And so this is for everybody, whether you're a parent or not. The way that you relate to children, the way that you accept them, the way that you affirm them and trust them and correct them, all of that is, is so, so important. And here's the reason why. It's because it doesn't just affect them. It affects future generations. Some of you got the issues in your life because generations before you that did it the wrong way. Now you think I'm making this up, but let me give you some statistics. <laughs> There's a rule among sociologists that they call the five-generation rule. Okay? And what that means is, is that there are decisions that are made in a home that doesn't just affect that home, but can affect all the way up to five generations in the future. All right, there have been some very famous studies on this, and probably one of the most famous was the study that compared a guy named Jonathan Edwards to a guy named Max Jukes. You may have heard of one, probably not the other. Jonathan Edwards was arguably the most intelligent American ever born on American soil. He had a genius IQ. He was an educator, he was a pastor, he was a theologian, 
He was a brilliant thinker. He lived in the early 1700s. And he was uh, really one of the, uh, the primary leaders of the First Great Awakening in America that eventually led to American independence. So he, had a, he had a hand in that. He also founded Yale University. And so he was just a brilliant guy. He was a copious writer. I know he's got at least more than 50 volumes of works that he's written in his lifetime. Um, great intellectual. But what was probably the most impressive as it relates to our discussion was the kind of father that he was and how he accepted and affirmed and trusted and corrected without condemnation. So keeping in mind the five-generation rule, let me give you the example of Edwards because he had this very strong sense of a responsibility as a father. He and his wife Sarah had 11 children. Now, and, I, and immediately I'm thinking, how in the world did he get all that stuff done with 11 kids? But the thing was, he was always there for all of his kids, no matter how busy he was. And he took his parenting very seriously. And no surprise, he raised his kids with biblical principles. Now, there was another man who lived in New York at the same time, and his name was Max Jukes. Max did not take his parenting seriously at all. He basically let his kids do whatever they wanted to do. He was harsh, he was angry, he was an alcoholic. And so there was a study of these two families going out five generations. Let me tell you about the difference. Now if you look at Edward's descendants in his generation and over the next four, here is what you will find. United States Vice President, three Senators, three Governors, three Mayors, 13 College Presidents, 30 Judges, 65 Professors, 80 Public Office Holders, 100 Lawyers, 62 Physicians, 74 Army or Naval Officers, and 100 Pastors, Missionaries, and Theological Professors and almost no lawbreakers over five generations. That is an amazing legacy coming out of one family. But what about the other side? So if we look at Mr. Jukes, who clearly did not follow <laughs> biblical principles, who disciplined in anger, and you examined his descendants, here is what you would find. Seven murderers, 60 thieves, 128 prostitutes, 140 others convicted of felonies, 280 indigents, and 440 family members who were wrecked by indigent living through addiction to alcohol. Out of 1,200 descendants that were in the family and were studied, 300 died prematurely, 67 contracted syphilis, and it was estimated that his descendants cost the state approximately $1.3 million. Big difference. So what we're talking about, whether you have kids or not, is your influence on future generations. So correct without condemning. Now there's one more point in regards to how to bring out the best in kids or anybody else for that matter. And principle five is to love them fiercely. And number one with that is to always forgive them. Loving fiercely means that you learn to offer forgiveness, you ask for forgiveness, you accept forgiveness, and you forgive yourself. You live in a spirit of forgiveness. You want a great marriage? I can tell you, I've been married 34 years, and there's, there's no big secret to it. Because a great marriage is the union of two great forgivers. If you're great at forgiving, you will have a great marriage. If you have a hard time forgiving, and you have a hard time letting go of things, then you're going to have a hard time with marriage. You have to learn to ask for it quickly. You need to learn how to offer it completely. 
not 90% and hold 10% back for later. <laughs> Y'all are smiling. You know what I'm talking about. Well, do you remember when? No, you, no, that's something you should never say. Past is the past, right? You've forgiven that, so you say. And so you need to live in that. The Bible says this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how did God forgive you? Completely, instantly, and freely. He didn't say, I'll think about it. That's how you have to forgive your kids. Instantly, completely, and freely. And here's the thing. Sometimes you may have to ask for forgiveness from your kids. Because daddy hasn't always done this right, you know. I, I, I corrected you when I was angry. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You're going to be hurt as a parent. Guaranteed. But godly parents keep on loving just the exact same way that Jesus kept on loving us. And number two... Never give up on them. When you love someone fiercely, you never, never, never give up on them, no matter what happens. That's what real love is. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's not just a verse for the wedding a verse for life it's not just a verse for marriage it's a verse for parenting it's a verse for just living in general love can outlast anything that's what real love is fake love you know here today maybe gone tomorrow real love never gives up see we all have failures. We all have to have somebody who's not going to give up on us when we mess up. We have to have somebody who points us to the grace of God. And sometimes we see that grace in other people. We may not realize that it's God right in that moment. But eventually we'll figure that out. We need somebody who will offer us forgiveness and who, more importantly, will help us forgive ourselves. It's relatively easy to forgive someone who's wronged you relative to the task of trying to forgive yourself. That's hard. So give yourself a second chance, just as you give others a second chance, and just as God gives you a second and a third and a fourth, because that's called grace. And that's the way God wants us to live. God has never given up on you. If we were to look at Isaiah 54.10, this is, and this is God speaking, he says this, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you. Human love wears out. We all know that. It has limits. That's why you need God's love. And that's why we need his wisdom to live, to parent, to build businesses, whatever it is that we're doing. And so I want to close with the same verse uh, last week, this week as I used last week. And this was Proverbs 14.25. And it says, Reverence for God gives a man deep strength and his children have a place of refuge and security. See, my kids and now my grandkids have a place of security. Because if they don't now, someday they will know that I have reverence for God and I'm accountable to Him. And so I can't mistreat them because I'm accountable to my Heavenly Father. And as I said last week, the key to being a great parent, the key to being a great person is simply to be a godly person to be a godly man or a godly woman. So the question I ask you today is, do you have enough courage to do that? 
you have enough courage to buck the culture? Do you have enough courage to live differently? Will you say, I'm not going to do, I'm going to do what's not popular. I'm going to do what's right, and it starts with committing your lives to Christ. Let's just bow our heads right now. And as we close in prayer, why don't you just say thank you to God? So say in your mind, God, thank you that you accept me completely, that you accept my uniqueness, that you don't want me to be somebody else, that you just want me to be me. And I want to be like you, God. I want to be godly. So help me to do these things with my kids or with other kids that I come in contact with. Because, Father, I want to make a difference in the next generation. I want to leave a legacy, whether it's as a friend or a coach or a neighbor, as a Sunday school teacher, just helping out in a kid's ministry. Jesus Christ, right now I invite you to come into every area of my life. Fill every room. Take out all the fear and all the frustration and sweep away all the guilt and the shame and the confusion and fill every room in my house, my mind, heart, and body with your love. I want today, this day, this moment to be a turning point. I want a new legacy to begin right now, today, in my family. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the, if you have a bulletin and you look at the top of it, or you've been familiar with our services, we have basically three sections or segments, if you will. We sort of have a time of worshiping God. We have a time of hearing from God, which is this. We have a time of experiencing God. And you all have noticed that we've been making some changes around our church in, in a lot of different ways. Changing and trying to change our culture to become a little bit more invitational, a little bit more uh, evangelistic, if you will. That's why we give you these every week, hoping that you'll just take them, right? We have money. We can print more. Take these. Give them to somebody that you see during the week. Leave them in a restaurant even. I mean, if you're still not comfortable handing them to somebody, leave them somewhere where someone else will see it. Okay? So, you know, and we've, we've fixed up, we've painted, we've, we've tried to improve the look of our physical plant here. Changing, you know, our tone a little bit in terms of encouragement with outreach and evangelism and some of the things that we're doing there. Well, beginning today, we're going to start instituting a bit of a change in this, this third part of our service. I want to draw you at your attention to, oops, where'd my slides go? Sneaky up there, aren't they? <laughs> Thank you, Dick. In John 4.13, Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. If you've read your Bible, it's a story you're probably familiar with. He sends his disciples on to get some food. He sits down by the well, Samaritan woman who um, Jews tend not to want to associate with at all, comes up to draw water. And Jesus engages her in a conversation. And they start talking about water, but they're not talking about the same kind of water. She's talking about water from the well. He's talking about an entirely different kind of water. And in the course of the conversation, he says this in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water that she's drawing up from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the watchword that is really going to govern this last part of our service going forward is this. 
Are you thirsty? And so for this final time, I'm inviting people to stay who are thirsty. Now look, there's no, this has always been a time when we, we want people um, to have a choice. You can choose to stay, you can choose to go. It's fine either way. No one is going to look any differently upon you if it's, you know, if you have somewhere to be, it's 11.36, maybe you have lunch plans, that's okay, right? But what we want are people to remain who are thirsty, who want more. And so I'm going to do something a little bit radical. If you're not going to stay for that part, I just would like you to go and, and congregate across the hall. And just, you know, be in fellowship there. You can stay, be as loud as you want. That, that's all great, right? If you need to go get your kids, if you need to go home, that's all fine. But understand that in this last time, and it's not necessarily going to be another hour, you know, we'll, we'll we, we, we want to turn that over to God, to the Holy Spirit, and just say, okay, Lord, what do you want to do today? And maybe some days it lasts five minutes. Maybe some days we're here till dinner. I don't know. You're doing a very good at, at what I taught you, because I know some of you are freaking out on the inside of you thought, oh my God, I have to be here till dinner. <laughs> but you all look, you look very impassive, so that's great. You, you, thank you for listening. <laughs> but seriously, you know, we want, just want this to be a time when we kind of just go for whatever God wants to do. That's all it is. There's nothing mystical, magical about it. We just want to be here, see what God wants to do, and then go do that with him. Okay, so I'm going to close this in a prayer, then I'm going to uh, shut the lights off again. Like I said, if you want to stay and visit, you're more than welcome to but we're lovingly kicking you out of here <laughs> because we want, to, we want this to kind of remain a place of quiet where people can hear. You know, if, if God gives them a word, if God is instructing them to do something, it, some, it takes quiet uh, sometimes to hear that still small voice. And so we welcome your visiting, your conversations. You, can, you know, we're talking about maybe getting our coffee set back up again so that if you want to go over there and have some more coffee and just hang out. Uh, we really want you to do that. But in here, just know that we're going for it in here. So Lord God, I just I thank you for for your scripture. I thank you for these words of Jesus. We invite your presence in a manifest way into this place now. Come and bring your touch for, for healing, for deliverance, for just going deeper with you. thank you for all those who have gathered here today. Just bless them, Father. Let them have an awesome week. And for all those that, that, that need to leave now, Father, just bless them as well. Help them to understand that it that we think no less of them, that there is no shame at all in, in doing that. That maybe some Sundays, even those who really want to stay are going to have to leave for one reason or another, and that's just okay. But we want to offer this time now and really just turn the entire 
uh, remainder of our time over to you. So guide us and bless us. Open the floodgates of heaven. And let your spirit pour forth. Give you thanks and praise. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless all of you. Have a wonderful week if I don't talk to you before you leave.